Hey there, what's happening you lucky Libertinis? Welcome to episode 15 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast on Thursday the 15th of September 2016 and you're here with me, Tom Laird, and my good-looking co-host, Anthony Samaroff. Last night, Mr. Samaroff and I spent a pleasant evening at the theatre. Yes, because we're cultured. We are, we are culture vultures and we went to see the Cheviot, the Stag, and the red, red propaganda. Sorry, the black, black oil. It was one of my favourite plays. One of the first plays I think I ever saw properly. Uh, and I think it was about... What year was that in? God, that was back in the 80s. I'm talking about 1980. I mean, it had already been out for a while. I think in the mid-70s it came out. i seen it when I was about 14 or 15. And it blew me away. And it really... Because I was a young, fiery ultra-nationalist. Mm-hmm. And it fed in to a lot of my nationalistic feelings however at the same time the problems i had with it then are still some of the problems i have with it now it's over emphasis on kind of socialistic left-wing ideology Uh, for me the main problem with it in that terms is like many sort of left-wing angles on things they really blur the lines between state power and economic power between the voluntary and the non-voluntary there's just this whole thing called corruption and they always call it capitalism which doesn't really distinguish from which bits are actually using the state and which bits are not you know because there's there's this is the problem with the political dialogue and has been since i don't know the 19th century where There's a failure to distinguish between the state intervening on behalf of private capital and just what businessmen do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Like, I think in Karl Marx's day, it was pretty easy to put all the rich people in one category because most rich people were and had been traditionally aristocrats Mm. who hadn't earned their riches by providing services to people which they bought voluntarily with their own limited resources, thereby proving that they were doing something valuable. You just had these rich people who earned a title and who were, many of them, able to you know, open up factories and think, things like that when, after the Industrial Revolution, or at least take control over them. But then you had a new class come in who became rich, not through a title, but through the accumulation of property. and But it's not that simple. It's not like, oh, they got property and that made them rich. You had to make good decisions with that property. You had to guess what people would want to buy. And if you didn't do that properly, you'd soon lose that money in short order. Yeah. So a lot of people don't actually have the perspective that the market has a inbuilt mechanism for forcing people with resources to use those resources in a way that serves others because those who do that successfully will gather more resources if they don't do what people want with those resources they'll soon lose them and someone who will do what people want with those resources will end up stewarding them yeah and i think the problem with a platform such as what the cheviot the stag and the black black oil presents is it doesn't make that distinction because that's simply not the case when the government gets involved. The government does not have to provide services which people value highly because 
it's still going to be difficult to get everyone in the country to vote you out, to lobby, to propagandise. Yeah. And if all the parties support a certain platform or a certain policy, you need to vote for a package deal. Now that becomes even worse when the government starts acting on behalf of very rich people to take land off people, to monopolise resources, to say only these people are allowed to act in a certain industry or capacity. And that's what you know we call crony capitalism. Mm-hmm. And what I think should be the definition of neoliberalism to sort of distinguish neoliberal capitalism from laissez-faire capitalism. Yeah. So how about you? Well, what, what I was going to ask you is, I mean, from a libertarian point of view, I mean, it's easy to have a pop, and so we, we will do, uh, quite liberally. Um, but it's easy to have a pop at what it got wrong. For you, as a libertarian, what things politically did John McGrath's play get right? That's the problem with the play for me, because I find it very difficult to tell. Okay. Because he blurs the lines between voluntary and non-voluntary, between state power and economic power, and... There's a lot of appeal to emotion in it. I mean, some of it was obviously wrong and horrendous, like this guy Sellers. Patrick Seller. Yeah. Factor. Burnt people's houses down and uh, with them in it and, mm. and was not brought to justice by it. So that was clearly wrong. Mm. But it's really unsophisticated to do a play where you present all the antagonists as sort of one-dimensional comic book villains. I mean, there's lots of playwrights who've gone out there and tried to dig into mm-hmm. the character. You know, see I mean, all that was start... missing at some point was a kind of woo-hoo-ha-ha-ha-ha yeah. and kind of like sort of... Yeah, the, yeah they were pantomime kind yeah, of villains. They, they needed some moustaches to twiddle, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, what, what if you're going to do it... I know, I know this has been out for 40 years odd and it was designed specifically to make a point about yeah. how Scotland's resources has not been... Evenly distributed. And evenly distri- but also just not belong to Scottish people. There's a lot of stuff that's blatantly wrong, like, you know, it was illegal to speak Gaelic that was prohibited by yeah. law, the speaking of Gaelic. Uh, it was prohibited to wear tartan, a right. plaid. Uh, it was prohibited to sing certain songs. Not unlike the situation today with the SNP. Very illiberal yeah. in certain ways. Uh, after the Battle of Culloden and those years following, there was all sorts of these illiberal laws that were designed to subdue the Highlands of Scotland, which was seen as problematic and rebellious uh, by the, the overlords in the government. If you look at it, the chiefs who were the landlords, they broke a contract as far as I'm concerned. They had a contract with their people. The people gave them loyalty and a workforce. And in return, the chiefs gave them protection and protected their their, right. their, their, their rights and, their, and, their, and their, their, their land and protected them from invaders and, and looked after them. Or were meant to. Were meant to, at least. That was the contract. That was the implicit contract between the chiefs and their and their their people, the clansmen. Once the chiefs became anglified, that connection broke, and suddenly the chiefs just started to see their their own people as a parasite right. on the land, and unprofitable, and decided to use force uh, to get them off of there. So all these points are valid, and as a libertarian, you know when you, when you start to prohibit people from gathering driftwood, right. 
you know, on, on, their, on their own back door, you know, on the beach. This is this is wood that just gets drift, you yeah. know, it gets washed up on the beach, and people weren't allowed to gather it because if they gathered it, then they could burn it, and they wouldn't have to go to a centralised place to buy wood. Right. So there was a lot of monopolisation going on. People weren't allowed to buy and sell their own, their own things that they grew. They had to only go through one person. Patrick Seller, the factor who was turning people out of their homes on behalf of the chiefs, was also setting up centralised stores where people had to go and buy and sell and they couldn't use anybody else. So from a libertarian, I've got lots of problems with the way the chiefs conducted themselves, with the way the government conducted things. They sent Royal Marines to subdue people. Um, so that's government force. And it, it raises interesting questions. But I agree with you that uh, John McGrath uh, and certainly the, the people who, who, who usually take this play at face value um, certainly don't seem to discriminate between government-backed crony capitalism and a completely free market that would have allowed people a lot more rights. There was no there was no real respect for individual right. rights going on. No. And it's worthy of mentioning that I think a lot or the majority of those landowners again were the kind of aristocrats that I'm talking about. They didn't homestead the land. They didn't and mix their labour with the land in order to gain ownership in yeah. the first place. It, it was, was a feudal just, system. It was a feudal system. So I wouldn't consider those to be valid claims on the property. In yeah. fact, if anything, the crofters who worked the land should have uh, had the most legitimate claim mm -hmm. to that land because they were the people who actually mixed their labour with the yeah. land and made it valuable. Yeah. And I think one of the, the problems going forward I have with this play, and especially the resurgence of it now, mm. is it tends to suggest that it's a good idea for government to seize land from people who don't deserve it. Right. You know, and then the government decides who doesn't deserve it. The government goes in and seizes land by force uh, using legal precedents that they've created and say, okay, we're going to take land. The Duke of Buccleo's got too much land. He doesn't deserve it. He's one of these feudal overlords. Let's take it and give it back to the people. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Two wrongs don't make a right. Um, most of the people who have a right, or who could arguably have a right entitled to those lands, were transported. They were transported to Canada. They were transported to America, to the other colonies, to Australia. And... They're not there anymore. Mm. So who do they actually give? Oh, they give it to the community. Well, who does the community consist of? A load of people who moved up from England, let's say, and bought cottages, you know, on Barra or on Sky or in Ascent, you know, certain parts of Scotland, you know, sold their, sold their flat in the central London and bought themselves, you know, a croft and a few acres of Sky in Scotland. Does it suddenly, is it, is it, is it more theirs by right than it is for the Duke of Buccleuch or for a chief who's actually lived on the land for generations? I don't think that's a, a just and fair so-called redistribution of land. And when I hear the term redistribution of land, I understand and I concede that there is a problem with too much land being concentrated in too few hands. And it is a prime resource. But when you start allowing government to decide who should and who should not have land, then we start going down the road to Robert Mugabe. Right. And Nicola, 
Nicola McGrabby. <laughs> Nicola McGrabby. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has intimated that you know she is in favour of these style of land grabs. Uh, and when you stir up sentiment in people to take land away, possibly from people who never ever did throw people off the land <laughs> and give it to people who never ever were thrown off right. the land, then you start to run into uh, real problems, I well, think. What about this? As supposing we were to move towards a more minarchist system of government, okay, and we wanted to do sort of sort of classic liberal radical fashion, and um, where we're trying to get rid of the aristocracy, mm. or not not get rid of them as in hang them up as they did in France, but yeah. um, just put an end to that institution. If the state was to take the land, bar what those people were living on, mm. and put it up for auction, so that rather than the government choosing winners and losers, the people who can afford to pay for it create um, the most are likely to be the the best stewards of it. Because you know, if you're going to buy a forest, you don't want to just chop the forest down once and then. You're, you you you've destroyed the value of your land yeah. and you've not got a sustainable resource anymore whereas mm. if you lease it from the government then you can just cut it down and let the taxpayer pay to replant the forest so then people who want to form a commune or whatever can yeah. get their hands on land for cheap because it's all coming up on auction and People, when it comes to natural resources, they'll be privately owned, they'll be in the hands of the people who could pay the most for them, yeah. which means the people who know how to preserve the long-term value of the land. And I don't know what you could do with the, with the money that was raised from that. Um, you could, say, distribute it equally amongst everyone in Scotland, including the the aristocrats who you've taken the land mm. off would have an even share in it. Yeah. But distributing land equally, I mean, when they say equally, I mean, what's the point of giving land to somebody who can't husband it properly? That's true. You know? Well, that's why I think auctioning it's a good value because people aren't going to buy it. Okay, but if you auction it, what's to prevent the same people who owned it in the first place just buying it back I guess, the same situation happening again. Well, that's fair enough. At least they paid their dues. I don't think they buy all of it back. Right. But in order, it would still involve taking it off them by force, though, would it not? But I don't think that they, I don't think that they have a historical claim to it. A lot. I mean, when you consider that 6,000, I don't know if it's 6,000 people or 6,000 families own like 69, 70% of the land in the UK. Yeah. And it's for historical... They're basically the progeny of conquerors, of, you know, of barbarians, of Attilas, as Ayn Rand would put it. Okay. But, again, that, that those were the times. That was... I mean, are you going to punish the descendants? Well, I don't see if you're... I don't see how you're punishing them if you, you know allow them to keep their house and the estate or whatever. But what was never really their due in the first place. Okay. And they would obviously argue that the only reason that the land is still there, it's still in, you know, sort of British, whatever that is, hands, is because they were the guys who were prepared to, 
you know, there, there was a contract between the people and the chiefs. There was a contract between the chief and the king. You know, and there was mm. there was all these sorts of, you know, two way contracts. You know, the, the 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 king could rely on the chiefs to back him up against, you know, let's say the Vikings, um, and in return, the chiefs got the king's protection and got. Were the chiefs going to be the ones doing the protecting, or were they going to send their serfs to? Well, do I the think fight back. In, I think back in the day. You know, they, they really did. You know, they were involved. You know, they, um, they couldn't be seen. They wouldn't have got the respect of their clansmen and their followers if they didn't actually take part. And, you know, and then lots of these people were killed in battle. Right. And not only that, if there was a coup, if there was a civil war, if there was any kind of thing like that and the landowner or the chief backed the wrong mm. side, he was a guy that got hung. Right. You know, um, if he failed to do his job by the king, he was a guy who ended up getting hung and his land was forfeited to somebody else. So there was a lot of responsibility came with being a landowner in those days. That's not the same anymore. I understand that. I mean, I'm not opposed to a land value tax. I mean, we've talked about yeah, that before. Yeah. We had Dominic Frisbee on the show a while back. And if you haven't seen the Dominic Frisbee episode, I urge you to watch that because it's really good and he goes into this land value tax idea in a big way. Now, I know a lot of you guys are opposed to it because it's a tax on, oh, it's a tax on property. We know, but if you're going to have a minarchist system, if you're going to have government, at least in the, the, the first stages, you're going to have to finance it some way. And I think a land value tax would probably be the best way, or the sorry, the worst. least worst way of financing that and at the same time democratising the, the land and, and splitting it up into smaller parcels. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably the, the way to go. Uh, only though, with the caveat that that becomes, that, that you exterminate every other form of taxation. Yeah. The Greens want to do this. I mean, uh, they've got a guy called Andy Whiteman. Who, who ran uh, the recent elections for them. He wrote a book called Who Owns Scotland. He also wrote a, one, a book called The Poor Had No Lawyers. Right. And he's kind of the guru for the Green Party in Scotland. And his book, um, The Poor Had No Lawyers, has became an absolute Bible for the Greenos. And they advocate the land value tax. However, they, ad they advocate it on top of every other form of taxation, which doesn't surprise me because the Greens have got that many social fucking programmes that they're going to have to get more taxation in order to fund them all, you know? And you made a very interesting yeah. point, Pansar, of about, you know, why is it when you when the Greens are talking, yeah. the Greens always talk about climate change, but as soon as you say you're an anarchist or a libertarian, they say... Who's going to build the roads? Like, why are they suddenly interested in yeah, roads? Why, why are you yeah. interested in so many? Why are so? Why have so many roads being built? Why can't we just build big railways? Why? Why we have high-speed bullet trains? Yeah, why aren't we just teleporting around the yeah. place already? Because there's no free market. Um, so yeah, so I think exterminate every other form of taxation, including income tax, sales corporate tax, tax. Yeah, corporate tax, and yeah, just yeah. have a land value tax. And it's kind of it's comparatively voluntary because you can you don't have to own land; you can sell it on, and also it means that. And it urges people to do something more productive yeah. with the land as well. You know, although that's a dirty word. That's another thing that came up in the play 
last yeah. night that somehow if you do something uh, that makes money, if you do something creative, if you do something productive with the land, then that's sinful and capitalistic yeah, as well. Because, oh, it's Thousands of acres of just bare-arsed land is somehow beautiful. But, I mean, I don't like golf. I can't stand it. I'm not interested in golf. You know, but why is I don't know. I don't see why a golf course is necessarily an environmental disaster. Yeah, they've probably but, got to keep it quite nice. Yeah. I mean, the stewards of the land haven't done that well as be evidenced by the fact that... No, the, the Mara State is probably the best example of that in Scotland. And that's the one the Greens and the lefties always bring up. Oh, look at the Mara State. That's privately owned. It's went to rack and ruin and it's a disaster. Well, okay, you know, um, if anybody's got any rebuttals of that, it would be good to hear from it. The Caledonian forest, forest? The Caledonian <laughs> forest used to cover most of Scotland, and only like about one percent or two percent remains. So, you, do you know what I mean? This, yeah. they, they've done such a really great job of preserving our natural resources, and now a charity has to go up and buy bits of it in hope of <laughs> replanting it. Yeah. So. I think that having a proper, um, some way of some way of getting the land in the hands of people who would steward it properly, mm. not just the state um, institutions and the sons and daughters of aristocrats of old. Uh, whether you do that by introducing the land value tax, which would encourage a lot of people to sell up the land to get rid of yeah. their tax burden. Uh, that would probably be the easiest way to do it. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about the their, their take on North Sea oil and the, you know again the attack on uh, close quotes capitalism because uh, they make the comparison between Norway, who took fifty percent yeah. of the oil revenue uh, out of their waters, whereas Scotland, or not Scotland, the United Kingdom government. Um, didn't really, didn't really sell off the concessions properly. What, what did you think of that and, and their idea that somehow, what they're hinting at is that the oil industry should be nationalised in Scotland? Well, I don't think that nationalising the oil industry would be a good idea. Again, they were so light on details that yeah. it's really hard to trace who the actual abusers are in that situation. Mm -hmm. I mean... I guess the idea was like that the oil was everybody's or you mm. know should belong to the people of Scotland. Okay, I mean, how do you decide? How do you decide how much Scotland should be? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean, does it? Does it? I mean, if you belong, if you live in, let's say, Dumfries, does the oil off the shore of Aberdeen? Do you have an equal share in the oil off the shore of Aberdeen to somebody who actually lives in Aberdeen? I mean, I, I don't know. I, the, I think for me the thing would be, and I'm assuming that we have some kind of status system here, I don't know how you do it in Ankapistan, maybe someone could tell me. Yeah. As you put the oil out to the highest bidder, you know, the person who's going to give the government the biggest share of the profit, and by doing that, you will have the company that can run it best. Okay. Or you know, or you'd have to do that for each field, so that there would at least be a pressure, a downward pressure in terms of price competition. There's a, 
there's a downward pressure in terms of price competition anyway because if they're digging the oil then they've got to compete with yeah. people digging the oil in other places so they can't just go oh well we'll give the government 90 percent on the other hand they can't say okay well we'll give the government 10 percent because someone else will offer the government 11. yeah yeah i mean just that while we're on the subject of oil i mean there's a there's a headline well not a headline but there's an article in today's uh, i uh, newspaper claiming Scotland's North Sea oil and gas income has sunk to a new low. That's despite the fact that there's a 21% rise in oil and gas production in the North Sea. But it's now... Well, I, mean, that oil, I mean, this is the plight of the oil industry, I guess. I mean, globally, I think it's in a slump. But the figures uh, recently show that it's the, the prices of the North Sea oil is at the lowest total recorded since 1999 when the first uh, statistics were first compiled so that's despite the increase in production so this could be behind the, the downturn in oil I mean I know personally three guys who have been in the oil industry mm. for 20 years at quite high level you know they make a lot of money they're both the, they're all private operators um, and they are looking to get out of the oil industry and get into something else uh, because they think it's 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 fucked basically, mm. um, and it, they certainly Scotland, Alex Salmon certainly Nicola Sturgeon to an extent has put a lot of store. You know they've been banging on about Scottish oil for you know the last thirty years and how it's going to benefit us, and I'm sure it will. Uh, oh, that was an interesting thing from the play. Uh, I don't know if you guys all know this out there, but just before the um, the yes no vote mm -hmm. in Scotland. The government, the UK government, decided to move the maritime border of Scotland and England yeah. something like 200 miles north. Yeah. So that now, if you get in a boat from Dundee and sail out into the North Sea, if you sail east, mm -hmm. you'll then be in English territorial waters. Yeah. That was done. There wasn't a lot of uh, talk about it. It wasn't advertised. You know, where was the SNP? Where was the kicking and screaming when this, yeah. this went on? So they've moved the territorial waters, even though they were and, saying, yeah. And the, the rub was that was to move seven oil fields into English waters, yeah, seven oil Scottish fields. water, yeah. to make the case for Scottish independence less lucrative. Now, this is nothing new. The English moved the border before, I say the English, the English government. UK government moved the border before hundreds of years ago. Berwick and Tweed was traditionally, historically and geographically a Scottish city and a port and the Tweed was the traditional defining border between right. Scotland and England and the UK government moved, or sorry, the English government moved the border uh, to, to include Berwick and Tweed in, in England's territory. So this is nothing new, this, this kind of thing's been going on, but this is they've moved the maritime border. So that's a bit of a scandal. Um, so, yeah, where's, where's the nationalists when you need them? Then we know there is no nationalists. What you have is the Scottish Notional Party who really don't know what they're about. Um, this brings this kind of thing up to date. Nicola, our wee Nicky, right, little Nicky, has been uh, sounding off again. Uh, just above the article North Sea Oil and Gas Income, uh, we've got Sturgeon saying, Britain faces a quote from a Britain faces a lost decade of turmoil and uncertainty because of the Brexit. This woman has absolutely no sense of irony whatsoever. 
all the SNP seem to be doing with this Brexit thing is repeating the same mantras, the exact same. Here's, here's the thing, Nicola Sturgeon, you are a unionist. Everybody I know apart from, I met Jim Sellers last night, by right. the way, at, the, the, at the, uh, the play, and I shook his hand and I said, Jim Sellers, God bless you. And he's a bit of a lefty. But he at least is the only person I know of in the SNP who told the truth about you know, Brexit and said, look, we're better off getting out of this thing. You know, what's the point of getting power away from Westminster just to hand it over to, to Brussels? And back to Nicola Sturgeon, she has no sense of irony. She is a unionist. She is every bit as much a unionist. And the SNP are every bit as much unionist as the Conservative and Unionist Party. The only argument is about what union we should belong to. Okay, Nicola Sturgeon doesn't think we should be part of the UK Union, but she thinks she should be, we should be part of the EU, the European Union. So that, and they're still coming out with this mantra that they've come out with on the Brexit vote, that we're all we're going to be worse off, we're going to be economically worse off, uh, the sky's going to fall on our heads. These are exactly the same thing that UK unionists were saying about Scotland leaving the UK. And now Sturgeon's doing the same thing. Now Daniel Haring had something, uh, if you don't know who Daniel Hanning is, he's the, uh, an MEP for the Conservative Party, but he's quite libertarian and he's very anti-EU. And here's, here's what he has to say on this constant harping on by the doom and gloomsters about Brexit. So far, it's looking pretty good. More startups have been launched in the UK since the Brexit referendum than before it. Retail activity has risen. In July, it was up 5.9% on the previous July. Jobs are at another record level. Unemployment fell by 8,600 in July. By the way, in marked contrast to the official predictions. Reuters had organized a poll of economists and their central forecast was that unemployment would in fact rise by 9,500% as a consequence of Brexit. It's an extraordinary thing. Count how many times on the BBC, on Sky News, on Channel 4 News, count how many times you hear the phrase despite Brexit as the introduction to some more positive figures. Of course, in any week there are going to be some good stories and some bad stories. But the danger is that a number of our pro-Remain pundits and broadcasters are so locked in to the dismal predictions they made before the 23rd of June that they are now determined to see only the bad news and to attribute all of it to the referendum. Now, you might say, well, I'm just obviously doing the opposite, right? Hannan is just seeing the good news. But surely even a fair-minded, committed Remain voter must notice the difference between what was said during the campaign and what's being said and done now. During the campaign, we were told that our immigration officers would be thrown out of Calais. Now the French government has confirmed that the old arrangements will remain in force. During the campaign, President Obama said we'd be at the back of the queue for any trade deal with the US. He's conspicuously refused to repeat that line since, and it's now becoming very clear that American policymakers expect there to be a bilateral British-American free trade agreement in place long before there is any European-American free trade agreement, if that ever happens at all. 26 countries have queued up wanting to sign free trade agreements with the United Kingdom. During the campaign, 
the German finance minister was brought over to say, you'll be treated like any third country, out means out. And now Germany is talking about having a special status that recognizes our close links. And when Mr. Schäuble was asked why he used that phrase, he said, oh, well, George Osborne told me to do that. Okay. Now, wherever you stand on this, it's not good for the soul to be looking all the time for bad stories. Again, contrast what people were saying before the campaign to what they're saying and doing now. You know, we had GlaxoSmithKline and AstraZeneca saying that it would be a disaster if we left. They've both now made huge investments of 285 and 330 million pounds, respectively, into the UK, saying that it's the best place to conduct research. Wells Fargo, the giant American bank, has just invested 300 million pounds in a new European headquarters in London. The German stock exchange is going ahead with its merger with the London Stock Exchange, something we were told would be imperiled by Brexit. Overall, of course there are good and bad stories, but overall, the position is optimistic. What do you think of that, Anthony? He's making the important point, which is, look, we were told all this stuff was going to happen. It's not happening. Please stop. Please stop looking for reasons why Brexit's a bad thing, just because you didn't support it. Yeah. It's immature, and it's like, I've never seen such a bunch of sore Crying losers. Yeah. It's like, look, you say you believe in democracy, we had a vote, it happened. You said, there, oh, there was all this lying on the Leave side. Well, there was all liar, this liar, lying. Plants and I know, fire, yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, there was all this lying on the Leave side. Yeah, like, you didn't t tell a bunch of lies about how horrible it was going to be. Just to say this to the doom and gloomsters, right? Employment boost. This is just in the same page where Nicola Sturgeon's chuntering on about how, you know, giant rats are going to roam the streets eating their children. Well, she didn't actually say that, but, you know, this is what she's hinting at. It's going to be terrible. Uh, we're all going to die. Uh, we're doomed. She's, she's Fraser from Private... Uh, she's Fraser from Dad's Army. We're all doomed. Captain Mannering, we're doomed. Okay, employment boost. 51,000 Scots find work. Scotland has been seeing a record rise in employment with 51,000 people finding work in just three months. May to July also saw the jobless total fall to its lowest level since 2008. Okay? That's after Brexit. Well, we haven't Brexited yet, but after we've decided to Brexit. You know, so... And this is in the I newspaper. Hardly a bastion mm -hmm. of, you know, right-wing reactionary thought and pro-Brexiteer yeah. sort of thinking, yeah. you know. So even they're admitting... You know, but they have to say despite Brexit, don't they? Yeah. I mean, Holyrood's economy secretary, Keith Brown, said, quote, encouraging figures showed the fundamentals of the Scottish economy are strong. And that's not, don't dare, you know, if you remember the SP, don't dare say, oh, that's because we Nicky went running, you know, we are knickers in a twist or, or, or to Brussels and assured them that we're the good guys, you know, we're not like the big bad English and we don't want to, you know, please like us, please like us, Mr. Frenchman. You know, remember the old alliance, this is what I said, you know, remember the old alliance between Scotland and France, but well, let me tell you about the old alliance. The old alliance was when it suited the French. You know, when Scotland really needed help against England, the French didn't want to know. They only wanted to know when it suited France. And that's exactly the same today. 
so you can forget about the old alliance. It's a pile of crap. We'll leave uh, Scotland and these shores for a wee minute. Cocaine trade causes a third of deforestation in Colombia. Okay. Now, a little while ago, we did a show on free market environmentalism. With Kaz Paul, yeah. With Kaz Paul. And we it's, urge you to look at that one. It's too. a lengthy show, Yeah. but it's very worth listening to because we hit on as many environmental topics as we yeah. could. And if you've ever been confronted with, oh, how would you protect the environment in a libertarian society? It will give you a lot of good arguments, particularly the second half uh, of the show, which is dedicated to issues other than global warming. Now, here's a thing. Almost a third of deforestation in Colombia is the result of cocaine production. And 10% of the world's animal species are living in the Colombian jungle. You're looking at 37,000 hectares. It's basically disappearing up people's noses. Yeah, last year. That's on a yearly basis. Now, we're told, how do you protect the environment without government? Is this not a direct result of the war on drugs? This stuff could be grown anywhere with a suitable climate, Mm. conspicuously. Instead, it's pushed into Colombia. Also, because it costs about the same amount as a bag of sugar to make a kilogram of cocaine, you know, it really shouldn't be very expensive. I've never bought cocaine, I've never taken cocaine, so I wouldn't know. But I think to get a kilogram of cocaine, you're looking at 10 to 15 grams, right? The fact is, it's still incredibly lucrative. I think cocaine is one of the most expensive drugs. And that amount of money makes a huge incentive for these Colombian drug lords to cut down the forest. If people could get cocaine from a pharmacist or something like that, Mm. the quality of the substances would be consistent. People would know what they're getting and it would be safer. Yeah. And we would not be spending altogether millions and millions and millions of pounds locking people up yeah. for putting substances in their body. Well, worldwide cost of the drug war, something like $500 billion. To date. To date. The total cost of the war on drugs, something like $500 billion. I believe worldwide. when you lock someone up in the UK, and you can check this out, you can do a quick Google, it's like £40,000 to send them to prison, and then you're talking about £25,000 yeah. a year. Mm. I mean... I'm not necessarily for this, but you could bloody, for a fraction of the price, you know, just give people free drugs instead of locking them up so that they didn't cause crime. Now, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be for that, but I'm just saying it would be less bad than what we do. Why are you wasting the time of these judges and lawyers? Why are you wasting the time of the police? These are man hours that could actually be serving the public. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make a person a better person if you lock them up for taking cocaine. In fact, it's silly to think that locking people up will serve as a deterrent to the most likely drug users because Mm. the reason why they're taking drugs is because they can't defer gratification. They're not very good at it. So the fear of punishment might be enough for someone like you and me who has more of a long-term time preference. Yeah. But for someone who's very impulsive, they, that's why they're taking drugs. They're taking drugs because they're very impulsive. So the threat of a punishment at some time in the future is hardly going to work as a deterrent. Yeah. One of the accusations you get when you're a libertarian and you say, 
look, we want to legalise drugs. You know, everything. You know, what's the point of saying, no, we'll, we'll legalise cannabis? You know, people just switch to, you know, whatever. Partly the reason people are taking plant food mm. and all these other kind of so-called legal highs, which mm. are not, which are now illegal, is because the other drugs that they would rather take are prescribed. And the worst one is the crystal meth in the USA, which is one of the worst drugs, yeah. and it's made because it's easier to make and easier to get your hands on the ingredients yeah. than less dangerous drugs like yeah. cocaine and heroin, which, yeah. by the way, are very dangerous drugs, comparatively yeah. speaking. Yeah. Crystal meth's worse. Yeah. So the drug wars created crystal meth, yeah. but please do go on. Yeah. One of the accusations is that because you want to legalize these things, that you, you you obviously want to take a lot of drugs. You know, you're you're into drugs. Speaking personally, I don't like drug. Well, okay, I drink alcohol, and that's a drug. But I don't. I, you know, what we would commonly refer to as drugs: cocaine, heroin, uh, even cannabis. I don't take any of them. I don't like them, and in a lot of cases, I don't like the fucking morons that take them. And if you'd have asked me even 10, 15 years ago, I would have happily taken part in a death squad going around, going around not only wiping out the dealers but the, probably the users as well but the fact of the matter is just because I don't like them doesn't mean other people shouldn't be allowed to do it provided you do not commit a crime while you're using these things you know do what you want you know all but the you know the the, the cost to the NHS and the cost to services, great. I've got a great cure for that. Privatise the, the health service, you know. And then the cost of the taking the drugs will be on the person who uses them. I mean, your private health company will say, sure, we'll insure you if you take drugs, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah. You know, and yet you can lie. Yeah. You can lie and say that you don't use these substances, but they'll find out and it will nullify your health care. Right. So... I don't, we don't encourage people to take drugs. We don't say that it's a good thing. We're just not prepared to put people in jail for, for using them. And, you know, and if you do use cocaine out there, this is another, this is, a, again, the hypocrisy of the environmentalists. You know, I, I know some people who, who are in the environmental movement you need know, to cry, you know, evil capitalists. The same people are sticking cocaine up their noses, you know, on a recreational basis. You know, you know I, I didn't realise that it was, you know, fair trade, locally sourced, you know, ethical cocaine that they were right. sticking up their noses. And you know, let's yeah. face it, yeah. on a free market, you could get that. If that yeah, absolutely, you could, you could do that on a free market. And this is the thing. A lot of these people will say to you, oh, you want to deregulate pharmaceuticals. Really? Do you realise how many people will be harmed by that? How many people? Well, you know... People already choose to take illicit drugs. Come when you buy cocaine, it does not come with a little certificate saying this is locally sourced, ethically sourced uh, cocaine. And you know, here's a little picture of the man that picked it and packaged it, and everything's been checked out and it's been tested in a in a proper laboratory. No, you go on word of mouth and reputation. Yeah. And, you know, and you go, oh, well, and you question these people and they go, well, you know, I know the, the guy who supplies me my cocaine, he's a really yeah, nice yeah. guy, so, you know. So you're going on reputation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's just mass, it's crass hypocrisy. And it's hard to even estimate how many people have died because of stringent regulations on drugs. Yeah. Because either A... Drugs come out way too late, so in the, the few years that we're intervening, yeah. people have had to go without them. And B, 
because the government's licensed it, people assume it's safe, and sometimes it turns out it's not safe, and then where does the buck stop? Can you get rid of the state apparatus? No, you... You can't, and you can't even sue. You can't, you can't even sue, sue the them. government because they've got whereas, money to pay lawyers and lock you up in a legal battle yeah. for absolutely years. Whereas but, if you had competing drug regulatory bodies, and they wouldn't really be regulating it as so much stamping it with endorsement, then you could guarantee a higher quality of assurance that what you were getting was safe. Yeah, and on that point. Here's an excerpt from a video from the YouTube channel Learn Liberty called The Most Dangerous Monopoly When Caution Kills. And you can check that out if you want to see this animated. All of us want assurance that the things we buy are safe. What's the best way for us to get it? One way is to have a government agency assess products and allow or forbid their sale. This is the way it works for medicines. The Food and Drug Administration requires and oversees lengthy, expensive tests of each new drug. Based on those tests, it decides whether or not that drug may be used. A different approach is to allow competing private firms to assess the products and give each one a rating. Customers decide for themselves whether to buy or not based on these ratings. This is the way it works for thousands of products from toasters and hair dryers to insulation and bulletproof vests. Manufacturers hire a private certification firm, such as Underwriters Laboratories, to evaluate their product's design and manufacturing process and to test it. If the product passes, the certifier's logo is added to it. Manufacturers pay for private certification because it increases sales. Customers who see the logo know that the product has passed rigorous safety tests and they are more likely to buy it as a result. Stores also value assurances of product safety. They don't want unhappy customers or lawsuits from selling things that turn out to be harmful, so they'll pay extra to stock certified products. Certification firms such as Underwriters Laboratories have no monopoly. They have competitors. Accordingly, they have a strong incentive to be cautious, but also fast and affordable for manufacturers. On the one hand, they depend on their reputations for trustworthiness built up over the years. A certifier who puts its logo on a product that turns out to be dangerous ends up with a damaged reputation and a higher likelihood that manufacturers will use a competing certifier in the future. On the other hand, if a certifier is overcautious and takes a long time on costly extra testing that delays a product from getting to market, or if it refuses to certify a product that turns out to be safe, again it will lose customers. Self-interest pushes these competing certifiers to avoid both kinds of mistakes, neither certifying dangerous products nor refusing to certify safe ones. Compare this to a government agency that has a monopoly on deciding whether a good becomes available. Its incentives are very different. What happens when such an agency approves a dangerous product that ends up causing harm? There are serious consequences for the careers of the officials who let that happen. As a result, they become excessively cautious. They take so long on costly extra testing that they do delay products from getting to market. When the product is a life-saving medicine, people die who could have been saved. Unlike a voluntary certification firm, a monopoly government agency faces no check on this kind of caution. If the agency rejects a product that's safe or takes years for additional tests, the manufacturer cannot turn to another certifier. No other certifiers are permitted. The government agency doesn't have to worry about losing revenue or going out of business because it's funded by taxation 
and not by the voluntary payments of its manufacturer customers. How much safety is the right amount? It is always possible to test a product one more time before selling it, but the test costs time and resources to run, so the more rigorous the safety testing procedures, the more a manufacturer must charge to cover its costs, and the less money it has to invest in new products. Who should decide at what point the cost of more tests becomes too high? Under monopolized government safety regulation, government officials decide. Under voluntary certification in a free market, everyone decides for him or herself, usually with the help of certification agencies and professionals such as doctors and pharmacists who make it their business to learn all they can about the products they advise us to use. Instead of the one-size-fits-all approach in which the government bans all products that fail to meet arbitrarily determined criteria, the market process creates and communicates various assurances of product safety and each buyer decides for him or herself. I mean, a good example is just recently, the Ministry of Defence has admitted some culpability in administering larium to its troops in malarial zones. Wow. I remember taking larium when I was in East Africa and I stopped because I just did not like the effects mm. it, was having on, uh, it was having on me. Uh, paranoia, mm. um, effects similar to what you would get having malaria, uh, incredibly bad hallucinations and, and, and night terrors uh, on this on this drug larium, and I stopped taking it. And I've done some research at that time, and I've been back over 10 years here, mm. and I discovered that the Dutch uh, had banned it, and they stopped issuing it to their soldiers mm. in uh, Indonesia at the time, mm. I think it was East Timor, there were, there were peacekeepers there because it was having such a, a detrimental effect on their troops. Now, one of the things that you read on this massive list of things uh, to avoid, you know, when you're taking larium, do not take, it says, do not take larium if you're in a stressful situation. Well, who's going to be in a more stressful situation than actually troops in a right. combat zone, right? right? And they actually issued this stuff. So that's the government issuing a drug to its troops, and when you're a soldier, you don't have any choice. You can't even not take it, because if you get malaria when you're a soldier, and they say, did you take your anti-malarial drugs and you didn't, you will be charged with self-inflicted uh, injuries because you got malaria and you hadn't been taking the anti-malarial drugs. These people have got bad side effects, it's been detrimental to their health, and now, uh, only now has the MOD admitted culpability in that. Mm. And uh, good luck to these guys trying to get you know proper compensation because you're up against a juggernaut with the government. Okay, going on again to something that the government's getting involved in. Uh, we're going back on the gun control yeah, here and gun licensing. Yeah, just briefly, because this yeah. was an important point in the Cheviot, the Stag and the Black Black yeah, Oil as well. The government had disarmed... The population in Scotland, yeah. they weren't even allowed to they carry, could carry swords. swords anymore. You know, never they, mind. Yeah, never mind have uh, musketry, you know, yeah. muskets and pistols. So, I'm and not they were sent away to uh, America and Australia and Canada. They were just taken off their land and shit. Yeah. Now, would they have been able to do that if those people were an armed population? No, well, they, I, I certainly think they would have had a more difficult time. It would have cost them more in terms of lives. In fact, as the sheriff's men, they sent Royal Marines in a lot of these instances to, to quell the local population who resisted these uh, deportations. Mm -hmm. And partly the reason it was enabled is because the population 
did not have the arms to defend themselves from predations of their own landlords and predations of the government. They couldn't defend themselves. They, as you say, they didn't even have swords. That was illegal. They couldn't carry swords anymore. They couldn't defend themselves from their government. So whenever you hear governments want to disarm the population, watch out. They're about to steal something off of you. They're about to screw you up the backside. And now, I mean, we're only talking about air rifles here. You know, so good luck to you trying to defend yourself with an air rifle. But, you know, they the put it in the crime section. It says, call for air gun licensing as a tax on animals. So, right, okay, so they're not banning air guns, but they want you to license them. It says your air gun attacks on animals have, spared, have soared by nearly 50% in two years and will continue to rise. An MP has warned yesterday, citing figures from the RSPCA. Now, I haven't looked at these figures. The RSPCA are not an independent and, shall we say, disinterested body. Mm. You know, they have an agenda. They rely on funding, mm. and they would like a lot. They would like some government funding, and they would like government to act on their behalf. So I would take their figures with a pinch of salt. The animal charity said that between 2010 and 2012, okay, well that's a short space of time, had received 2,346 complaints about air guns, but between 2013 and 2015 there had been a 3,504 complaints arise. Of 49%. Well, that's that's a kind of small snapshot, and air rifles and air guns have been in circulation for a long time. I think they were far more popular and far more in use when I was a kid. In my street, I think nearly every other mm. teenager or kid that you knew had some sort of air weapon, whether it was a, a gap which is a really rudimentary small Yeah, well, pistol. I mean, maybe if it's normal, then people don't see a big fucking novelty in it. And, oh, I've got an air rifle. I'll shoot some cans. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to try and shoot that squirrel. If people have got them, then you know what's going to happen if you try and shoot a squirrel. You know that it's going to get hurt and that it's going to be cruel. And there should be some form of yeah. response from the state or the community. Well, whether an air rifle is or not, Having a license is not going to stop somebody from using an air rifle to injure an animal. That's true. Or injure a human being. And I don't even know if there's any evidence that will reduce it. You know, never mind stop it. And, you know, that's just air rifles. But, I mean, let's, let's have a look at um, another incident concerning weapons, okay? Uh, this is in London. Again, this is in the crime section, it's the I newspaper. Machete gang kills bodyguard to the stars, right? A celebrity's bodyguard was stabbed to death on his driveway as he tried to defend his home from thieves armed with machetes. So you don't got guns, you'll use some other uh, exactly. form, form of weapon, you know? And let's suppose this guy, poor guy, Ricky Hayden, 27, who had worked for us as a security guard for ITVs this morning, okay? Apparently had tried to defend his home and property from a gang who tried to who stole a moped that was parked outside his home. Now, had he have had a gun, would he have been able to defend himself from these thugs instead of getting you know stabbed yeah. to death, getting hacked to death with machetes? Guns are already in the hands of criminals. 
Yeah. Yeah, criminals aren't going to stop using guns just because they're banned. No, they're not going to use. They're not going to stop using air rifles. They're not going to stop using machetes. They're not going to stop using zombie knives. You know, they will use anything because guess what? They're criminals. They tend to have a blatant disregard for the law, so they'll have a disregard for weapons laws as well. So I think possibly this guy could have defended his home and his personal property better had he have been armed. We know that criminal gangs in London already have firearms. So all you do when you disarm people and you create firearms laws is you dif- disarm the law abiding. That's right. Be libertarians. Don't be a lefty, don't be a righty, be libertarian. Please talk to us on Facebook and on Twitter if you've got any thoughts about the show, anything we've discussed. If you want to argue with us, uh, make a case, by all means do so, or leave comments on our YouTube site. And share the show. It's a good show. Bye-bye.